Good morning, Alethea. Um, my name is David. For those of you who do not know me, I am one of the deacons here at the church. Um, and if you're a little confused as to what David is doing up here this morning, you're not alone. The first time I got to preach in November, my wife's reaction was, you're preaching? I mean, she was much more supportive after that. Um, but all, joke, all joking aside, I'm, I'm very thankful um, for the leadership of this church and the opportunity to share with you guys this morning and just the reality that the elders here don't just put the words engage, equip, and power on the back of shirts and leave it there, but they actually take that um, seriously and, and try to give us opportunities to use our gifts. And, um, and this is one way of doing that, so I really appreciate that. As Jeff just read, we're going to be in Joshua 20. Um, we have been going over the book of Joshua, and while we have not covered every single chapter in the book, we've been covering all of the major trends um, that we have seen. And so I'm going to give a quick recap before we actually get started. Um, and like I said, in this book, we have preached through most of the major themes. I mean, we have seen um, the need of Joshua to be strong and courageous. Um, we have seen how our loyalty ultimately needs to be with God in the story of Rahab. Um, we have seen the dangers of hidden sin and the balm that is confession and repentance. Uh, we have seen the importance of prayer. Um, and during this time of, of that we've been going through the story in Joshua, we have seen that God has made it a concerted effort to establish his relationship with Joshua as their new leader and this new generation of Israelites. Um, and the purpose of this has been to make sure that God's people always remember that their success is predicated on the God that they serve and not the man that is leading them. And we see this pattern over and over. I mean, there's a lot of parallels between Joshua and Moses. We saw that God split the waters for Joshua as he did with Moses. He was obviously with Joshua in like their military conquest um, as well. Uh, last week, we saw God literally stop the sun. So obviously making it very clear that he is present and working amongst his people. And today, while we're in Joshua 20, all they are establishing is these cities of refuge, which we're going to get into. But all of the information and the guidelines for cities of refuge was already given to Moses in Numbers 35. So Joshua is now getting to carry out what was already given and commanded to Moses um, all the way back in Numbers 35. So we see this awesome parallel of God just reestablishing his relationship with his people. Um, but before we get into that specifically, I'm going to say a quick word of prayer and we will get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone who is here. We thank you for your word, and we just pray that your spirit can be working and moving in our hearts and in our minds, and it can lead us to a conviction of sin. It can lead us to just a conviction to the love that you have for us and the mercy that we have um, in the sacrifice of your son. I pray that um, we can leave here uh, wholeheartedly believing that you are our perfect refuge. All right, so... What comes to your mind when you think of the word refuge? Is it a place? Is it a person? Is it maybe something intangible that gives you refuge? What comes to your mind? When I was initially, Kevin's like, hey, this is all of the information. And when you're going to preach, I was like, cities of refuge. I was like, okay, so don't know much about that. But the first thing that came to my mind is like, 
was a castle. I was like, okay, a refuge. I love like old war movies. So I'm like, I love castles, something that stood the, the test of time. I'm like, that is what comes to my mind when I think of a refuge, something for protection. And while I don't think this is a bad definition of refuge, um, if you think like me or if your thought uh, went there, um, my hope is that by the time we leave here today, we have a more robust definition of the term refuge, and ultimately that we have a blessed assurance that Jesus Christ is our perfect refuge. So we're going to develop three major points. Um, I'm, I, I, my brain thinks in bullet points, so sorry about that. Um, the three major points we're going to develop is first, we're going to see uh, just what a city of refuge is, okay, in case you did not know that, as I didn't when I was given this text. The second thing we're going to see is what the cities of refuge tell us about God and his character. And I'm only going to list four things, but this is definitely something that in your gospel communities, I hope you guys can dig deeper and maybe even find more, because this is a very rich text that lends itself to that. And then the third thing is we're going to see that Jesus is our perfect refuge. So let's start with the first point. What is a city of refuge? So the cities of refuge were six cities, part of the 48 cities that were given to the Levites. Now, these six cities were designated as cities of refuge, as we saw in the passage that we read. And verses three and four tell us what their purpose was. In other words, it was a place for, of refuge from the avenger of blood for one who is guilty of manslaughter. Now, I want to note there that in, the, in, in chapter 20, it is important to note that this was both to the Israelites and to strangers that were among them. So not just, the, the refuge was offered to strangers among them as well. We see that in verse 9. Um, a couple of things that I want to clear up first is that in biblical law, intentional killing, that is murder, was punishable by death. Okay, So that is the basis of what we call capital punishment today. Um, but there was a biblical difference between manslaughter, which is killing someone without malice or forethought, and intentionally killing someone. If you want more details as to how they determine that, in, uh, in Numbers 35, we're given a little bit more uh, description as to what, what the elders of the city would look for to determine if it was manslaughter or murder. Um, okay, uh, so that is just a basic clarification there so that you, when I use manslaughter, I'm saying unintentional killing. When I say murder, someone who intentionally killed someone. So three of these cities were on the western side of the Jordan and three of them were on the eastern side of the Jordan. No, no place in Israel was more than a day's journey away from one of these cities. Also important to note. Um, once an individual got to the city, they would undergo a trial by the elders, and they would determine if they were guilty of murder, to which they would not give them refuge, and the avenger could take their life um, as rightful punishment. And if they were guilty, or if they were only found to be guilty of manslaughter, they would be allowed into the city where they would have protection. Now, this protection would last until the death of the high priest. Also very important. We're going to come back to that. Um, yeah, so they, they remained there until the death of the high priest. And uh, once they were there, um, the, the accused person could return home 
after the death of the high priest with no fear of retribution, okay? So just in quick summary, it was a safe place for anyone who unintentionally killed someone. They were promised safety into the death of the high priest, and all of this was after they had undergone a trial by the elders to determine if the killing was murder or if it was manslaughter. So that is a basic definition of what a city of refuge is. We're going to be working based off of that. Um, I know last week, Vinay said it was important to establish our terms. So I think Daniel said that. That's one wise guy. Then Vinay, that's another wise guy. And I'm just repeating them, so don't take any credit from me. But I think it's important to set that out. Um, but I do want to highlight one point, and that is that these cities represented incomplete refuge. I think it's fitting that we are given six cities of refuge when in Scripture the number seven is a number that represents completion. You see, these cities can't protect what is most important, that is, your soul. And their safety was ultimately only temporary until the high priest died. And even while you were in the city, right, you could still die of natural causes. And while the law said that after the high priest died, you were free to return to your city with no fear of retribution— I'm sure some of the Avengers might uh, disagree with that and take matters into their own hand. So the protection was ultimately not uh, complete, if, if we want to use that word. But now that we have this basic understanding of it, I want to turn our attention to what the establishment of these cities tell us about God and his character. Because I know most of you are thinking, man, why are we spending a whole Sunday morning talking about a practice that was for the Jewish people to establish cities when we're not going to do any of that today. Well, I think they are going to show us a lot more than, than maybe we think or know about God and his character and what he still means and does with his people today. So I only list, like I said, I only listed four things that I think this establishes or tells us about God's character, but feel free to dig deeper into that into your, your small groups. The first thing that we see about God and his character is that God provides a place of mercy for his people before they have even committed and acted out in sin. This includes not just the Israelites, but also the Gentiles, as we saw in verse 9. And the Bible is very clear that before the foundation of the earth, God provided a means for mercy for his people, both Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians 1, 4-5, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, God's mercy is proactive, not reactive. Therefore, we should seek our refuge in him who has chosen to show his love for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.8 tells us that. And, and see, we, we also can find refuge in God and in Christ. And in fact, he calls us to. Look at what Matthew 11:28 through 29 says. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. In a book that is fitting because it's based on that passage and it's called Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland talks about this, this idea and he develops it very well. So I'm going to steal a quote from him um, where he says, 
You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. You see, we tend to project our desires and expectations that we have for other people unto God. So we like to make sure that people have it all together and that are nice before we can get close to them and show them love. And therefore, we assume that God expects the same thing from us or needs the same thing from us. But actually, this is what we can call, the, uh, or what Dane calls the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity, that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse in honest acknowledgement that we never will. Jesus calls us to come to him as we are, not as we want to be or wish that we were. The second thing I think this tells us about God and his character is that God has a plan to break the cycle of sin. And, stop, and, and, and these cities were, were there to stop a cycle of wrongful vengeance, okay? And I don't know about you guys, but my first reaction when someone does something that hurts me is not to ask, hey, did you mean to do that? Most of the time, I try to get retribution as quickly as possible. I mean, my sister can attest to this. We, yeah, we were, I mean, just typical siblings that are separated by two or less years. I mean, she would find ways to hurt me that I didn't think were possible. And again, sometimes I'm sure she did not mean to, but when I was on the floor grabbing my elbow because it was burning on fire, I was not thinking, hey, did you really mean to push me into that rock? I was thinking, what can I push her into? Because I need to get, I need to get my dues. Um, and so God, obviously knowing our hearts better than we know ourselves, um, sets these cities up in a way that they acted as a buffer to, to allow for wise justice instead of quick revenge. Um, and we, as Christians, have the freedom to seek wisdom and justice hand in hand because we ultimately understand that vengeance is of the Lord. That is what frees us up to be wise when we are, when we are seeking judgment and not just be quick and rash with our judgment. And again, as is, as is kind of the theme of these cities of refuge, they did this partially, but God has now done this perfectly through the perfect sacrifice of his son, through whom all is made new. I mean, look at the encouraging words in Revelation 20, 21.5. It says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these words down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The third thing, we see that God values human life. I mean, this is kind of a straightforward one here. Um, even accidental killing had the consequences of being in exile in a city of refuge until the death of a high priest. Um, not to mention that if you were found to have committed murder, the punishment was death. And we know that life is, is sacred and has value because we are created in God's image. Okay, And this leads directly to the fourth thing that I think these cities point to about God and his character. And that is that sin is ultimately an affront to God and his character, not just something we do against our fellow man. In Joshua 20, we see this, the establishment of these cities, but in Numbers 35, we get 
a glimpse of the insight as to why these cities were so important and required. In verse 34, it says, it says why we are, we are to have these cities. It says, do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. These cities were meant to keep the ground holy, not just because the Israelites lived there, but because of the God who dwelt among the Israelites. And David understood this perfectly. Um, if you're not familiar with the story of David, not me. I am not talking in third person here when I say this story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, right? Then he tries to cover it up, get, brings her husband back from war, tries to make it look like they had a child. The guy is a much better man than David and says, I cannot do this while my men are at war. And David says, right on, man. Sends him out, puts him at the front lines, and has him, effectively has him murdered, right? And whenever he is confronted with his sin, what is David's reaction? In Psalm 51.4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And because sin is an affront to God and his character, where else can we go to look for refuge but in God himself? These cities enlighten us about God and his character, and they ultimately point us faithfully to he who would come and be our eternal refuge. And, the, and, and this just leads to my main point, which is that Jesus is our perfect refuge. And again, you might be asking yourself, hey, David, I'm not really planning on killing anybody either on purpose or accidentally. So why does this actually matter to me? Um, and to that I say right on, please don't do that if, if you can. Um, but the truth in Scripture is, is very clear that we all need refuge from the consequences of our sin. In 1 John 3.15, it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, maybe you're like, you know what, I, David, I don't really hate anybody. All right, let's move on to uh, Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, that's a problem. That's all of us. Um, so now that we're all on the same plane, this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. Because Romans 3 does not end with verse 23. There's an amazing and in verse 24 that says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in verses 25 and 26, he says, how? whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I don't think that that section of scripture can be more clear as to where we can find our refuge. Yes, it is true, as we saw in verse 23, that we have all sinned and fallen short. 
but there is also great hope that can be found in Christ. And I think that is very key because, see, if we look back to Numbers 35, and I'm just going to read this myself, in verses 26 and 27, look what it says. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city, of, of his city of refuge, to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. You see, the protection, the refuge, was only valid as long as you were in the city of refuge. And in the same, in the same way, we see in Romans that our refuge from the consequences of our sin is only valid if we are found in Christ. To receive complete refuge from the consequences of our sin, we must be in Jesus. That is the parallel. Uh, and these cities that we see, they're like a, they are a type of Christ or a foreshadow of what was to come. And Christ is the fulfillment of them in whom sinners find refuge from the destroyer of our souls. That is sin and its punishment. Look at Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. And this is why I said the fact that the refuge only lasted as long as the high priest was alive. This is why I think it's so important because Hebrews does an awesome job of unpacking this. In verse, in verse 18 through 20 in chapter 6, we are told, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the, or, after the order of Melchizedek. You see, much like the theme in Hebrews, which if you're familiar with Hebrews, the theme there is that Jesus is just better than everything. Right? It's like he's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than the priest. He's better than the angels. He's just better. Right? And much like this theme, we see here that Jesus is better than the cities of refuge. He is the fulfillment of these cities. And unlike in the cities of refuge where your protection was partial and temporary only until the high priest died, our great high priest, who is Jesus, will never die. And therefore, our refuge in Christ is complete and eternal. And, and, and Hebrews develops this a little bit more one chapter over. So in chapter 7, look at what it says. Now, there have been many other priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he, is, since he always lives to intercede for them. You see, church, our refuge is able to save completely. Where these cities could only do partially, Jesus can do to the fullest extent. He doesn't need you to have it all together first. His grace and mercy are sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient. His forgiving, redeeming, restoring love reaches down into the darkest places of our soul where we are most ashamed and defeated. All we must do is draw near to God through Jesus 
who, as Hebrews also tells us, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And who always lives to intercede for them. I love that last section of the passage there. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way. He says, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. He is able to save and give us refuge fully. Um, Alistair Begg has a sermon on the power of the cross, which if you have some free time this week, about 48 minutes, uh, this is a great way to spend 48 minutes. I couldn't recommend it more. Um, but he tries to answer this question as to, you know, just the basic question that a lot of people ask. You know, if you were to die tonight and you were at the gates of heaven, which I'm like, oh, that's kind of a good parallel with the gates of the city of refuge. We'll leave that in the back of my brain. Um, and, and, the, and the angel at the gate asks you, hey, you know, like, why should you be allowed to enter into heaven? And he says, if our answer ever begins in the first person, because I believed, because I remained, because I, he says, we're already, we're already off. We're already wrong. The only correct answer can start in the third person, because he, and he uses the example of the thief on the cross, which if you're not familiar with it, there's two dudes being crucified, one on each side of, of Jesus, and one of them in Luke 23, uh, verses 42 and 43, asks Jesus, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to that, Jesus replies, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he uses this story of the thief on the cross, and he's like, man, I, I want to meet this guy in heaven and be like, dude, how did that, how did that shake out for you? Like, boom, you're on a cross, and then suddenly you're at the gates of heaven, and boom, you made it. And the angel is at the, is at the gate, and it's like, hey, uh, so, so why should we let you in? And he goes, I don't know. They're like, um, I mean, this guy didn't know, was not baptized, did not know a thing about church membership, and here he is making it to the gates of heaven. The angel's like, what do you mean you don't know? And the guy's like, dude, I don't know. So the angel's like, oh, okay, let me go get my supervisor. So, you know, a, super, a supervisor angel comes in, and he says, um, all right, let's, let's get down to the bottom of this. Um, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy's like, never heard of it. And, and the supervisor's just like, all right, I, I have no idea what to tell this guy. What, what are you doing here? How, how are we supposed to let you in? And, and to that, the thief answers very simply, listen, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And that's it. That is our only answer, that is our only plea, that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is the only answer that we can have when seeking refuge from the consequences of our sin. And listen, the truth is very simple. The gospel is not about us. It's for us, which should be a more calming and, and, and should give us more hope for the future. If it was all about us, it would be a very minuscule thing to talk about. But after talking about all this, it, it begs us to ask the question, where do you go to find your refuge? Is it in your money? 
Is it in your status, maybe your friends, our works of righteousness, you know, being good enough, being a good person? Is it in your intellect? You know, I'm, I'm a very bright individual. Um, not me. I'm just, you know, thinking out loud. Uh, in your physical abilities, you know, are you just very confident in yourself? And the truth is that none of these things can provide us refuge from the consequences of our sin. And scripture is just crystal clear that refuge comes from and through our unity with Christ. And what I mean when I say that term, it's kind of like an umbrella term of a lot of these benefits that we get from being found in Christ or having Christ as our Savior. And I think it's worth reading Ephesians 1, 7 through 14, because it, it lists out a lot of these benefits. So uh, I'll, I'll read from verses 7 through 14. It says, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, the, uh, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of in him there. And this isn't just found in Ephesians. I know I've, I've leaned a lot in Ephesians and Hebrews today, but Romans 8.1 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 tells us for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is where we can find our beautiful refuge. In Christ. And listen, like, I feel like we understand this practically, right? Like, I just got a dog, and so I have this, like, six-month uh, golden retriever who's an absolute unit of a dog. If you ever see him, he is, his paws will let you know that he's going to be a lot bigger than he already is, which is concerning for me. Um, but so, you know, in the process, when you get a puppy, the first thing you got to do is potty train him. So you're, like, taking him outside all the time, what, what feels like. And you're like, come on, man, do your business. Come on, let's get going. Um, eventually, at this point, he's pretty good at it. But at first, we spent a lot of time outside in our front yard, backyard, side yard, wherever, wherever he really wanted to go. And we have this, like, small, small tree. My wife doesn't want me to call it, like, a meager tree, but it looks bad. Like, like the branches aren't even great. It gives some shade, but it's not really. Like, it's just there for looks. Um, and so I know when my dog is either tired or done trying to go, because he just goes right under the tree, lays down flat. I mean, if you have not seen my dog, he, in his defense, he's a walking carpet. So he has to be really hot outside, you know, the hot uh, summer Florida days. Um, and so when he's done, he just goes, finds a little bit of refuge under this tree and, and, you know, cools off there. But even he kind of like figures out, hey, you know, it's a lot colder inside the house with some air conditioning. Um, so at some point, 
he decides, hey, let's bolt back to the door. And he's just there looking at you, waiting for you to open the door so that he can go. We have, we have wood or laminate in most of the house, but we have a sunroom that is tile. The man loves tile because it's cold. So he just goes and lays out there and he's like, ah, this is, this is the life, right? So my dog kind of understands the concept of that some refuge is better than the other, right? Um, and I think we do as well. Like if I'm outside and it starts to rain as it has every single day this week, I don't think, huh, you know what? That's a beautiful building there. You know, just seeing it from out here, I think that's enough protection from the rain for me, you know? I think that's all. No, we, what do we do? We get up, we walk inside the building and say, well, I'm going to wait at least until the rain passes or at least get a poncho or an umbrella, whatever, another form of refuge. So we get this physically and practically. But what I want us to understand is that that, is, that, that foolishness to basically stand outside and say, hey, like, just looking at that building is enough refuge for me. I'm good out here. You know, this, this hurricane that's coming around me, I'm fine. This is all fine. While we all laugh, we're like, nobody would, none of us would actually do that. Come on, David. Seeking refuge elsewhere apart from Christ is the exact same thing. And both of these examples that I gave are merely earthly examples, right? You can walk into a building and the AC could be broken, there could be a leak in the roof. So it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect example because you see the refuge that we have in Christ as we saw is not only eternal, but it is complete and it is perfect. This is our only hope to flee to Jesus Christ, who is our eternal refuge. As our high priest, he will never die. And in him, we have eternal salvation. No avenger can touch us because he has already died and risen from the dead. And this isn't just our refuge and our hope here while we're on earth, but it is an eternal hope. Revelations 21, 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. A practical way that we can seek to make God our refuge is given to us in Psalm 62, 7 through 8. Psalmist says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. If, you, if everything I said today about God and the refuge that he is for us rings true, then this should lead us only one way, and that is to worship him and to trust him more and to pour out our heart in worship. And if it does not ring true, if you say, hey, that sounds great, but it's just not true in my life, then our reaction should also be to put our trust in him and pour our heart before him and ask him to make that a reality. Pray and ask the Lord to become your refuge. And I know the elders and leaders of the church, this church would love to walk you through that. If you have any questions after the sermon, please stick around. Many people here would love to, to, to walk you through that. I want to start wrapping up with this. I found this hymn that I thought was appropriate for like everything that I was trying to 
say in today's sermon. And I know the hymn is old because it wasn't on Spotify. That's kind of how I gauge if music is old nowadays. Um, But it's called Safety in God. And I'm just going to read it out for you guys because I thought it was very encouraging for me. It says, when overwhelmed with grief, my heart within me dies. Helpless and far from all relief, to heaven I lift mine eyes. Oh, lead me to the rock that's high above my head and make the covert of thy wings my shelter and my shade. Within thy presence, Lord, forever I'll abide. Thou art the tower of my defense, the refuge where I hide. Church, I pray that we can all leave today with this confidence in Christ who is our perfect refuge. And I want to I wanna just read more of that Psalm 62, um, and with that, we'll, we'll wrap up. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. I pray that this can ring true in our hearts and that it can just lead us to trust you more and just lead us into all-out worship for what you have done in our lives and in our hearts. Pray that if anyone is here today and does not feel that to be true, pray that you, you with your spirit can guide them, can give them life, can give them understanding, and overall can help them feel your love and your protection. I pray that we can just go on this week living out of the understanding that we have ultimate refuge in you and all other refuge is secondary. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So after we have discussed all of these important benefits that we get from our union with Christ, we will now have an opportunity to partake in communion, which is a way to celebrate our intimate connection and relationship with Jesus. Jesus invites all of his people who have trusted in him for salvation to partake in communion. Communion is an opportunity as the people of God, to spend time in quiet meditation and reflection, confessing our sins, trusting in Christ Jesus for forgiveness of those sins. Once we have confessed these sins and turned to Christ in faith, we partake in the bread and the juice as an act of worship. If you have never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sin and cannot consider yourself a Christian, please do not partake in the Lord's Supper. Communion is a reminder that Jesus freely gave his life so that we might be forgiven and adopted as God's children. We take it not as an act of contrition and penance, but worship because in Christ we have been welcomed home to God. We also take the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of the future when we will dine at the the banquet feast with Christ in heaven. So I'm going to lead us through a simple response time um, as you feel led from your seats. 
Let us pray for a few moments, confess our sins, and turn trusting to Christ. And if you have not gotten one of the packets, they are up here. Let's just take some time to pray and reflect first.